There was a 75-year-old man that went to his doctor. Doctor noted that he was in fantastic health and asked him the reason why. He said, well, my wife and I, when we were married 50 years ago, we had an agreement that when we ever, if we ever had an argument, that if I got mad, she would remain silent. And that if she blew up and got mad, that I would leave the house and take a long walk. And so he said, I credit my good health to the well-known physical advantages of much walking. (laughs) The Bible has a lot to say using the imagery of the walk. Uh, Colossians chapter 2, Paul writes, As you have received the Lord Jesus, therefore walk in him. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul pulls out that same metaphor, that same image. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And again, same chapter, walk in love. And then John, in 1 John chapter 1, the same thing. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So the Bible often uses this term walk, and we see it here as a transitional point of the book of Ephesians in chapter 4. You can tell a lot about a person by the way he or she walks. Some people have a gait that is definite. It's uh, steady. Uh, Some people walk in a hurried, harried fashion. Some people sort of meander when they walk. They're just sort of cruising. You, You wonder, are they really going anywhere? I think they wouldn't be able to answer that question, are they going anywhere? One time, Dwight L. Moody, the famed evangelist from Chicago in the late 18, not early 1900s, was having a conversation with a friend of his, and um, he noticed somebody, and Moody said, that man must be in the army. And his friend said, well, how did you know that? Because he's a friend of mine as well, and he is in the army. Moody said, I can tell by the way he walks. Just by the way that person carries himself, he could tell that he was in the armed services. A few years ago, my wife bought me a book on walking. It's because I was doing a series on what it means to walk with the Lord. So just fuel and fodder for uh, the series, it was a book on walking. And the book highlighted a lady by the name of Fiona Campbell, who made walking her passion. She had crossed four continents, and she had logged 16,000 miles on foot. It became her passion, and it was something that her dad loved to do and challenged her to do, and she grew up becoming this gal who broke all of the international records in walking, and walking 16,000 miles. Now, chapter 4 marks the second section of the book of Ephesians. If you remember back when we started, we gave you an outline. The wealth of the believer, the walk of the believer, and the warfare of the believer. That's how the book is laid out. So he begins by telling us, first of all, who we are in Christ. Remember that term? 27 times it's used in the first part of the book. You're in Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ. And then What's in your bank account? All of the spiritual wealth that is yours because you and I are in Christ. Then he turns the corner and he uses that famous Pauline transitional word, therefore. 
I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In other words, this is now what you ought to live like based upon your wealth, based upon what you have and who you are in Christ. If you're in Christ, and if this is what you have in Christ, this is how you are to live in Christ. Jesus, to his disciples the night of the Last Supper, washed their feet. He got on his knees and he played the role of a slave. And some of them, especially Peter, didn't know what to make of it. And he said to them, as I have done to you, I want you to do to one another. Love one another as I have loved you. But then he said something very important. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. That's the whole idea here. If you know what you have and who you are in Christ, therefore, do them. Walk in them. Take all of the head knowledge, all of the Bible history, all of the knowledge of context and background and words and degrees that you might have and translate them into shoe leather. Live it out. This is how you and I are to walk. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, the chapters we have already covered, could be compared like, I think, to the disciples' experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember the story? There was Peter, James, and John. They went up onto a high mountain with Jesus. He was transfigured before them. And it just blew Peter's mind. He was dazzled. So much so, he said something really dumb. Which is not unlike Peter. Not unlike us. He said, Lord, it is good that we are here. Duh. And then he said, let's build three condos. Well, the Bible says tabernacles, but same idea. The three dwelling places, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. In other words, this is so good. Let's live here. Let's stay right here. Then the father, of course, had to interrupt Peter and say, uh, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. <laughs> Hear him. And then they left the mountain and went down into the valley. And there was a man who was demon possessed and immediately spiritual warfare ensued. So they couldn't live up on the mountaintop. They were called to live in the real world, the valley where we all live. A lot of us love that experience. And, and that's Ephesians 1 through 3. This is what you have in Christ. Oh, I love it, you say. This is who you are in Christ. Yes, tell me more. Tell me more. And God would say, I've told you all that I need to tell you for now. Go down in the valley and live it out. Oh, can we just stay in the mountaintop? Tell us more. Tell us more sermons about who we are and what we have. No. Now, therefore, walk. Well, let's look at the first 16 verses, and we're going to cover more of them in depth next time. And We're going to zero in on four points tonight. I, therefore... The prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. See, he was a southerner. (laughs) In y'all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, quoting Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ until we come, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He described in part a worthy walk. And that's what we want to look at tonight. And I want you to evaluate your own life, not your wives or husbands or dads or moms or children's or friends or pastor or ex-pastor or boyfriend or ex-boyfriend or the person sitting next to you. No elbow jabs tonight. Just your own life. Worthy walk or wimpy walk? And we're going to look at the worthy walk. And first, let's define it. A worthy walk is defined by consistency. A worthy walk is defined by consistency. Look at verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. The idea of worthy in the original language, the original text, has to do with weight. And if I were to give you a literal translation, it would sound really funny. Let your walk weigh as much as your calling. The idea comes from weighing something on a scale where one side of the scale balances out or corresponds to the weight on the other side. So here's your calling in Christ. It's pretty heavy. Now walk in such a way that it would correspond to your calling. That's the idea of what it means to walk worthy. For example, if we say that somebody is Worthy of his hire or worthy of his wage. We mean that what he makes per hour or what she makes per week, per month, per year corresponds to the kind of output that he or she in work will produce. Even Jesus said the workman is worthy of his wage. That's the idea. One weighs as much as the other. Or if we say that person's worthy of honor. We mean that the person's accomplishments correspond to the accolades, the praises that they get from people. They're honored. They're worthy of honor. So to have a worthy walk means our life corresponds to the call. We're called as Christians. Our position is a child of God in Christ. John the Baptist used the term in this fashion when he said to the crowd who had gathered and they were doing this, you know, crowds do that. A lot of us do. I'm good enough. I'm religious enough. He said, bear forth fruits worthy of your repentance. Okay, you say you've repented of your sins. I want to see it in a lifestyle. So you soldiers don't treat people harshly. 
You bosses, don't treat people who work for you harshly. And he gave a list of several things that people ought to do that would show a worthy life, worthy of repentance. So, I beseech you, the prisoner of the Lord, that you walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Or as the New English Bible translates it, as God has called you, live up to your calling. It's a call for consistency. We're called what? Christians. Christ followers. Or as the term originally implied, little Christs. Reflections of Jesus. We're called with that noble name, Christian. And if that's your calling, boy, that's pretty weighty. Now live up to it. A walk worthy of the Lord. By the way, notice how Paul introduces himself. He says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Did you get that? He's putting himself in the mix. I'm sold out as a slave to God. I'm all about doing the will of God. Now he's writing from where? Jail. And he saw his prison as somehow being in the the very center of the will of God. I'm, I'm a prisoner, but not of Rome. I'm God's prisoner. I'm a prisoner of Christ. My life is so sold out to Jesus Christ that even in this cell that I find myself in, I'm all about doing what he wants. This is a call for consistency. This would be a slap in the face to hypocrisy. Jesse James, the bank robber, the famed bank robber from Kearney, Missouri. On one occasion, killed two people. Shortly thereafter, was baptized in the Kearney Baptist Church. On another occasion, he killed the bank cashier, then joined the church choir and became choir director. It is said that Jesse James loved Sundays. But, but he couldn't always make church on Sunday. He was predisposed on a couple of them, you know, murders and bank robberies and the like. He was a hypocrite. His life wasn't worthy of what he called himself. He called himself a churchgoer. He probably called himself a Christian. And he called himself a choir director. The idea then is to be genuine. It's the opposite of being phony. It's as if Paul is saying, how dare you say what you say when you live like you live? I want to I wanna press that point a little further. Keep a marker here and turn, turn right. Go to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I know you've seen this before, but maybe you haven't noticed it in quite the same vein. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, stop right there. Isn't that one of the most beautiful things a person could say? I have fellowship with God. God and I are like this. It's one of the greatest things a person could say. But if a person says that and walks in darkness... Do you see then the contrast between what we say and how we walk? One isn't worthy of the other. We lie and do not practice the truth. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar. 
and the truth is not in him. Verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. One of the most beautiful things a person can say are the things we just read in 1 John chapters 1 and 2. 35% of the American public claims to be born-again Christians. Now, four out of five Americans, four out of five Americans claim to be Christians. 35% say they're born-again Christians. Now, we have a little bit of a problem if we look at the lifestyle, the behavioral pattern of the American general public, not even all of them, let's say four-fifths of them, or 35% of them. Do they reflect the values of a born-again Christian? You know, Irma Bombeck had great household wisdom. She, she said, never go to a doctor whose house plants have died. Isn't that good? Never go to a doctor whose house plants have died. If he can't take care of a house plant, he's going to take care of you. Now, I would say the same thing about Christians. Who would go to a Christian for direction in their life if their own life, their own walk, Seems to be not on track. A walk worthy. Okay, let's go on to verse 2. So a worthy walk is defined by consistency. It means to weigh as much, correspond one to the other. Second, a worthy walk is demonstrated by humility. For look at it, verse 2. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We, we go now from definition to demonstration. He's defined it, a walk worthy, at least I've defined it in its original language, to weigh as much. But he goes immediately now to demonstration, and he gives us four qualities in that one verse, four qualities that could be all summed up by one word, humility. A worthy walk is demonstrated by humility. First on the list, notice verse 2, lowliness. What do you think of when you hear loneliness? Does that connote to you something good? Is that a good quality? If you're a Christian, you'd say, yes, it's a good quality. But if you lived 2,000 years ago and you were Greek, you'd go, oh, yuck, yuck. Because loneliness was a despised characteristic to the ancient Greeks. The term meant the crouching submissiveness of an animal, like a dog. And so for Paul to write to a Greek culture, a Greco-Roman culture, heavily Gentile in Ephesus, saying, here's how you ought to walk in humility, in lowliness and gentleness, was something that the average Greek would go, you're kidding, right? Because the Greeks elevated self-confidence. Self-assertiveness, self-righteousness, not lowliness. The ancient Greeks would have loved Clint Eastwood's movies. Go ahead, make my day. They would have said, yeah. Or Governor Schwarzenegger's, I'll be back. Or any other god of the American pantheon of macho-ness. They'd have loved it. They despised lowliness and they elevated self-assertiveness. But Paul says, based upon who you are and what you have in Christ, you are to have a lifestyle worthy of the calling 
And that is demonstrated by humility. And first on the list that describes that is lowliness. And just so you don't think that God is giving orders that he doesn't follow himself, God demonstrated this in his own son, who being in the form of God and thought it not robbery to be equal with God, emptied himself, became of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant. And being found in appearance as a man, as a servant, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death, the death of the cross. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am lowly and gentle in heart. You might say lowliness is the grease that keeps the gears of the church flowing smoothly. Second on the list is gentleness. Or some older translations translate it meekness. That's a perfectly fine translation. Lowliness or meekness, gentleness. Now, when you think of meekness, you might think of weakness. Please don't. One is not the other. Meekness is not weakness. To have meekness isn't mean, doesn't mean you're gutless, spineless. Go, oh, yes, I'm a Christian doormat. That's what Jesus called me to be. It doesn't mean that. It means strength under control. You have the strength, but you're going to hold back. The Greek word praos is used here. Gentleness, praos. When a wild stallion was tamed and under the control of a master, they called it praos. Gentle, meek. When a soothing ointment was put on a sore to take away the stinging or take away the fever, it was called praos, gentle. Soft words that would turn away strong emotions were called praos, gentle, meek words. A young girl wrote an essay on the Quakers, and she said, Quakers are very gentle people who never fight and never answer back. My mother is a Quaker. My father is not. <laughs> she knew it in her own family. What does it mean to be gentle? It means to be God's gentleman, God's gentlewoman. Power, strength, under control. Look at the next term. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering. It means to be patient with aggravating people. Now, you're laughing because, because you probably know some aggravating people. Or maybe you've met one in your lifetime. You probably met one today. You say, oh, no, I met several today. Well, that's what it means. Long-suffering to be patient with aggravating people. 1 Corinthians 13, love suffers long. Long-suffering. Macrothumia comes from two Greek words, makros and thumia, to wait a long time before burning up. That's the idea in the original. It's, it's um, letting the motor idle when you feel like stripping the gears. God is long-suffering, the Bible says. He waits a long time before he acts. That's where his grace comes in. He is slow to anger. He lets the fuse burn a long time before he acts. Now look at the next. Bearing. Bearing with one another in love. The New Living Translation puts it, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Bearing with one another, putting up with people. Sometimes that's all you can do. Put up with them. Endure. Hang in there. 
Let them spew, let them vent, bear with one another in love. Again, foreign to the Greek way of thinking. Aristotle said that you shouldn't be tolerant of people's faults. And you shouldn't especially be tolerant of people's insults. If they insult you, said Aristotle, in all of his great wisdom, insult them back. Don't put up with it. Quite different from what Jesus taught. You have heard that it was said by those of old, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, he who is angry with his brother without a cause is guilty of murder. But then he said, whoever slaps you on one cheek, turn the other to him. Look at Jesus Christ. Did he bear with people in love? When they spat on him, did he spit back? When they put a crown of thorns and smashed it on his head and they beat him to a pulp blindfolded and put him on a cross, did he say, wait till after the resurrection, you'll get yours? No, that would have been me. Jesus didn't do that. He said, Father, forgive them because they're ignorant. They don't know what they do. Bearing with one another in love. Husbands, do you bear with your wives in love? Husbands, do you bear with your wives in love? Wives, do you bear with your husbands in love? Yes. Really? (laughs) Children with parents, parents with children. Now look at the third aspect of a worthy walk. A worthy walk is dignified by unity. It's defined by consistency. It's demonstrated by humility. It's dignified by unity. Verse 3, endeavoring, trying, working hard at, keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We are immediately struck by Paul's frequency of the use of the term one in the verses we just read. He mentions it seven times. And you can count, if you look a little more carefully, three of those instances have to do with God. Look at it. Look at verse uh, four. There is one spirit. That would be the Holy Spirit. Verse five, one Lord That would be the Lord Jesus Christ, as he was often called our Lord. And then verse 6, one God and Father of all. That would be God the Father. So we have the Spirit, we have the Son, we have the Father. In other words, listen carefully, the unity in the Christian community is to be based on the unity in the heavenly trinity. The unity in the community is to be based on the unity of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you think they get along? Do you think? Do you think ever the Holy Spirit ever says, hey, I want a little more visibility. <laughs> Jesus got to come to earth and they saw him. I want to be seen. No, the Holy Spirit never even mentions or speaks of himself. He's always glorifying Jesus. And Jesus is always pointing to the Father. And the Father is saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So the unity of the Christian fellowship is based upon the unity of the Trinity. Now, the other four references in what we just read in this list refer to our experience in relationship to the Trinity. So follow it with me. First of all, there's one body because there's one spirit. And it's this Holy Spirit 
that baptizes us in the body of Christ takes Jew and Gentile, very different backgrounds, very different worldviews, very different customs, cultures, and brings them into one place called the church. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the church age. So there's one body because there's one spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews, Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink in one spirit. Second, there's one hope, one faith, one baptism, because there's only one Lord Jesus Christ. We all believe in him. We've been baptized into him. We have hope in his return. It's all about him. And then third, we're one family. Verse 6, notice the term all. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There's one family because there's one Father. The reason you and I are brother and sister is because God's your Father and He's my Father. That makes us related. So there's a oneness, there's a unity. But he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, that's our job. God has provided the unity in the Trinity that gives the basis for unity in the community. But you and I have to try. We have to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit. He he made it so it can happen, but we got to work at it a little bit. Sometimes that's hard. And sometimes we would say it's impossible, and it is without a working of God, but Good news. He'll work. He'll supply the power for you and I to pull it off. Endeavoring. And and I love that. In another place, Paul writes, as much as lies in you, be at peace with all men. He recognizes that you're human. That sometimes you're going to try and not be able to bring people together and bring unity. You'll, you'll try your best, but you'll be misunderstood. You'll be misjudged. But as much as lies in you, be at peace with all men. Sometimes you can't. You try, oh, tried, didn't work. Try again, didn't work. Go about it the biblical way, Matthew 18, didn't work. But we endeavor, we try. So our unity is to be a reflection of the Trinity. A few words about unity before we finish this off. When the Bible speaks about the unity of the church, it does not necessarily mean organizational unity. Now, if you're an American businessman, this might uh, fly in the face of everything you know and you've been taught and work at in your business. We think that unity must mean there's a perfect organizational unity. If you want to see one of the most unorganized groups in history, look at the early church in the book of Acts, especially the first few chapters. Talk about disorganized, but it worked. It was at that beginning stage of revival. They didn't have bylaws. They didn't even have a Bible. But the Holy Spirit was powerfully working in and through them. Some people today have this glassy-eyed, ridiculous view of church unity, sort of like, let's get rid of all denominations and all names and all groups and we'll just all get in one big circle and have one big church service and we'll sing Kumbaya. Ain't going to happen. I don't think it was ever meant to happen. I don't think I even read about that in the Bible. Uh, Let's see. uh, I remember 12 apostles who argued who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. 
I remember the church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 having a big argument about grace versus the law and not getting along. I remember Paul and Barnabas getting in such an argument that they had to depart from each other and split company and go in two different directions. And we could say, that's deplorable. Well, actually, the work of God doubled. So that is part of human nature. And that's part of the nature even in a family. We're not going to all perfectly get along. Please understand that. Let me ask you this. In your family growing up, was everybody always in perfect harmony and unity? Ever take a family vacation with all the kids in the back of the car? I did. I went from California to Minnesota like every year. And we still love each other. But everybody in the family is different. You've got individuals in the family. You've got morning people. You've got night people. You've got somebody that's compliant, somebody who's defiant, and they're all in the same family. It's like us. <laughs> Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Second thing I want to say about unity before we move on, when the Bible, when the New Testament speaks about the unity of the church, it doesn't mean uniformity. Uniformity, that is where we all have to wear the same clothing, vote exactly the same, and all read the King James Bible. That's unity. No, it's weirdness. There's latitude here. It won't mean we agree on every single topic or every single policy or every kind of song that we sing. Walter Martin told me one time, if two people agree on every single thing, one of them isn't thinking. I believe that. And so in the Christian church, you've got some who are premillennialists. That would be me. Some who are amillennialists. I feel sorry for you, but I love you. Some who are pre-tribulation in their eschatology. That would be me. Some that are uh, mid-tribulation. Some that are post-toasties. Uh, there are fuzzy fundamentalists and kooky charismatics, but they can all be Christians. And I thank God that there are churches out there to fit them all called the body of Christ. When it comes to unity, there are things we divide over and things we don't divide over. L let me give you an example. We should divide over essentials. We should never divide over non-essentials. But you know what I see most churches around America doing? Dividing over non-essentials, not over essentials. Whenever you divide over essentials, the church gets stronger. Whenever you divide over non-essentials, the church gets weaker. You know what essentials are? The person, nature, work of Christ. Uh, the, 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 um, the theology of God. Um, the Trinity. Uh, those are essentials. If somebody says, I don't believe Jesus Christ is God and I don't believe in a trinity, then I'll say, we divide in fellowship. You're not a Christian. The church historically has always done that. At every council, at every convention, and every time they did that, the church got stronger. We divide over essentials. But we don't divide over non-essentials. Styles. Modes of baptism. Speaking in tongues or not speaking in tongues. If you divide over that, you can debate but not divide. If you divide over it, you weaken the church. Augustine was right. His axiom was this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. 
in essentials, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity love. Okay, fourth, and we'll close with this. A worthy walk is displayed by diversity. So let's go back. A worthy walk is defined by consistency. Authentic, consistent, godly living. A worthy walk is displayed by humility, lowliness, gentleness, bearing with one another. A worthy walk is dignified by unity, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because we're all one, whether, whatever your background is. But finally, a worthy walk is displayed by diversity. Look at it and I think you'll understand it. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is also the one who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or more literally mature or complete man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Something you got to notice. There's a stark difference between verse 6 and verse 7. And I want you to look at it. The concept of all versus the concept of each. Verse 6, one God and Father of us all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Now there's a shift from that concept of all to the concept of each. Verse 7, but to each one, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. There should be unity in the church. There should also be diversity within the church. You see, the church, the body of Christ, isn't a group of mass-produced automatons. There's individuality. There's diversity within the church. Every person isn't to be an exact replica of every other Christian. Unity is best displayed through variety. Because... It's easy for you and I to love people who are just like us. Oh, you agree with me? Oh, you're godly. You disagree with me? You heretic. You see, when there's um, people who will be different in the use of their gifts and callings and even outlooks and approach, and there's a desire and a workability to be in unity with each other, that's a worthy walk. That's a worthy walk. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are exhorters. Some of you are mercy givers. Some of you are administrators. But one thing is sure, to each one, grace is given. I'll put it to you plainly. Church can never become a spectator sport. If it becomes that to you, then it's just sport. That's all it is to you. I go to church. So, what do you do there? It's not a spectator sport. Bud Wilkinson, University of Oklahoma, was once asked the definition of football. He said, well, football is um, my definition. It's, 
It's uh, 22 people on the field doing all the work who desperately need rest and 22,000 people in the grandstands who desperately need exercise. (laughs) Churches can become that way. There's just a few people doing all the work and everybody's watching, saying, good job. I'll give you a six on a scale of one to ten. No, to each one is given grace. I found this. One person's resolve. I've been a dead weight for many years around the church's neck. I've let the others carry me and always pay the check. I've had my name upon the rolls for years and years gone by. I've criticized and grumbled too. Nothing could satisfy. I've been a dead weight long enough upon the church's back. Beginning now, I'm going to take a wholly different tack. I'm going to pray and pay and work and carry loads instead and not have others carry me like people do the dead. You know, in a healthy church, every member is a minister. Every member is a minister. Look at verse 12, that there's pastors, teachers, and these gifted people for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. One of the functions of the pastor teacher isn't to do the ministry, but it's to help others do the ministry, teach them how to do the ministry, help them do the work. That's why I believe in layman's liberation. When people say, you know, we need this ministry because this isn't being done, I usually go, great, you're called. We'll empower you. We'll work with you. We'll mentor you, but you can take that ball and run with it. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So, walk worthy. We have a high calling. Christians, Christ followers, lovers of God, what a calling. But the weight of that calling will go boom on the scales unless it's balanced out by a worthy walk. Christians who reflect that balance. You know, we've all seen people who um, we would look at them and we would see the colors that they choose to wear. If you're the fashion police, that is. You'd see what what combination they do. We go, ooh, hmm. But they put those colors together. Or they put plaids together, you know. Or they'll, you know, they're the tourist with the dark socks pulled up to their knees and the white shoes and and, and shorts. And I hope I didn't describe anybody. Um, (laughs) In the same way, you can get spiritually lopsided, spiritually not in sync, not coordinated spiritually. You know how? Get tons of head knowledge, learn the Bible really, really well, and never do it. Never practice it. Never say, by God's grace, I need to now exercise and do this. And we can become spiritually out of joint. So verses 1 through 16, and we're going to go back in more detail next week, emphasizes how we're to walk Worthy by walking together as a group. Keep in mind, the overarching theme of all this isn't the individual walk. It's how we walk with other Christians in the body of Christ. Walking with others who walk with God. I've been to Japan a couple times and I've learned to absolutely love the Japanese culture because of the emphasis in the Japanese culture is not upon the individual but upon the group. They revere the group. 
It's so different from Americans. We esteem the individual, my personal needs. What's in it for me? What about me? My personal comfort. Not in Japan. It's what about us? There's a lot of us on this big island. We got to get along. And the group is more important than the individual. It's sort of like the Star Trek Spock philosophy. Do you remember that? The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one. Do you, do you remember that? Do you track with that? In the body of Christ, it's the needs of the many. And balancing and counterbalancing and helping each other walk. How can I help you walk? How can you help me walk? Worthy. Most of us don't have the problem I'm about to describe as I close. Most of us, our feet are pretty close to being the same size. Now, everybody's feet aren't exactly the same size. They tell you that when you buy shoes or a good foot doctor will remind you of that. But um, a lot of people have really, um, uh, there's, there's not an equivalence from one foot to the other. Some might have a left foot that's a size seven and a, Another foot that's a size eight. So there's a couple of services in America and Canada for those people. I found them online. One is called the National Odd Shoe Exchange in Santa Monica. It's been around for 25 years. Another one comes from Kitchener, Ontario, Canada, called the Miss Mate Shoe Service. This is how it works. You find a partner somewhere in the world or somewhere in your country relatively the same taste with the opposite problem. If your left foot is a size six and your right foot is a size seven, you find someone whose right foot is a size six and left foot is a size seven. And you get on the phone or on email and you discuss your likes and prices and you each buy a pair of shoes and swap one. <laughs> you get two shoes, two pairs out of it. Isn't that cool? You're helping each other walk. Isn't that great? The body of Christ, listen, the body of Christ, we should make our weaknesses irrelevant. Because I have certain strengths, but I got a lot of weaknesses. But you have certain strengths and weaknesses as well. And when you get all the gifts, all of those strengths operating together, we're learning, we're teaching, we're helping each other walk worthy. And so it's called a body of Christ. Please. Don't do what many Americans have fallen prey to, and that is, I have a personal relationship with Christ. So do I. But we take that to mean it's private. It's personal. No, it ain't. It's public, baby. When we pray, we pray, our Father who art in heaven, not my Father. Our Father. We're in a body of Christ. We help each other. We enable each other. We strengthen each other. We need each other. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, your name is holy to be revered. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. As your people, as your flock, as your body, we need every single part, every single member as a minister. One isn't more important than the rest. We cannot, we must not let the church become a spectator sport where we find the 
the new show or we let it become for us a show. But Lord, we participate. Lord, I pray that we would walk worthy by walking consistently. I pray that we would learn to walk worthy by walking in humility, lowliness, gentleness, bearing with one another in love. Lord, I pray that we would all walk worthy by getting involved with each other in the diversity of giftedness that you've put even here. And Lord, we would dignify it by endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Thank you, Lord, for a meal midweek, a time to get together, time to push out the problems, the affairs that crowd our minds, our thoughts, to lay them before you, and to come back and be reminded of truths we have read about, we've heard about, but now tonight, maybe for the first time in a long time, it's your spirit, the one who put us together in the first place, who's pushing his finger at our hearts. And he's saying, therefore, walk. Therefore, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Lord, thank you for the church. It's a wonderful idea. Yet men and women, slaves, freed people, those of high economic status and those of the lowest, to get together and explore one another's strengths, giftedness, weaknesses, and help each other walk. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's all stand. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God,